Hey folks, welcome to the Fallon Forum, bringing you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. I'm Ed Fallon, your host, with Charles Goldman today, and we're coming to you from the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. That would be Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, if you value what we do, we need your support. Visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Market at Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. And speaking of culture, thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing our bumper music, you can experience a traditional Irish Session every Tuesday somewhere in the greater Des Moines area. All right, so before we dig deep into the Memorial Day edition of the Fallon Forum, Charles, i got to ask you, what do you think of the um, Christian University in New York, Hofton University, that fired two staff members for using pronouns in their emails. They just guys just gotta get that out. Um I, I I don't really know about that story yet. I know you sent it to me, but um they've been using those pronouns for a while. I don't know why all of a sudden they would be fired for that reason. The university claims they've actually banned scripture from uh being appended to any email salutation. So um I don't know. I'm I, this is the kind of story that in the past We'd never hear about. Yeah, right. And I, I, it's yes. very hard to have context. Yes, it's a Christian university, pretty much akin to Hillsdale in Michigan, uh, a very fundamentalist Methodist uh, Wesleyan Church University. So sure, it could be because, and they are known uh, to be uh, somewhat antagonistic, to say the least, toward LGBTQ doctrinally, as well as uh, as an administrative unit. But I don't know if they really fired them for that reason or not. Yeah. Anyway, I it, it was getting some play. I thought I'd get your opinion on it. Well, everything it. gets play now. I mean, well, you know, we're, <laughs> we're talking way too much about these, you know, isolated social issues and missing the big picture. But And speaking of which, I know you're a fan of uh, Greg O'Lear. Yes, I am. Uh, he's, <laughs> I, I'd not heard of him until you introduced me to him. He's got this uh, hierarchy of Republican priorities, he, as he calls it. Uh, and it's so full of uh, FCC forbidden words that I can't. Uh, <laughs> That's how it usually we is. Can't, yeah. We can't quote it verbatim, but a couple of his uh, his uh, tidbits on one child labor. Uh, if ten year olds can play Mario Kart, they can put baskets of frozen fries into sizzling hot vegetable oil. Their sacred right to do so should not be infringed. Right. Uh, although you know, Governor Reynolds <laughs> says that they're learning uh, important life skills. Uh, while they're being paid, of course, below minimum wage, which is the real reason that child labor is being brought back. Right, because we'd rather have kids working than allow any more immigrants to cross the border. Well, that, and again, well, that's another group that gets paid below minimum wage. Yeah, speaking of which, uh, O'Lear on immigration. Most foreigners come to this country to steal our jobs and suck at the teat of the nanny state. That's why the wall had to be built. The exceptions, Rupert, Rupert Murdoch from Australia and Elon Musk from South Africa. And Melania. And Melania. Melania right. Trump. <laughs> okay. He's, um, he's pretty harsh on religion, too. Um, Jesus is white. He's bearded. He's packing heat. He's making his triumphant <laughs> return any day now. And he hates anyone who doesn't hold the exact same religious beliefs as the pastor in your little church who thinks fossils are put on the earth by Satan to test our faith in the Almighty and that he was able to successfully pray away the gay. Yeah. And we may talk a little bit uh, with my brother, who we we speaking with soon about the issue in the military of a certain strain of fundamentalism, yeah. funda fundamentalist Christianity, which is absolutely uh, forbidden, actually, by Air Force regulations and yeah. Supreme Court decisions. Uh, so, hey, but I want to I want to move on. Uh, I want to welcome uh, Charles's brother, Dr. Stephen Goldman, to the program. Uh, Stephen is the author of One More War to Fight. Union Veterans Battle for Equality Through Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and the Lost Cause. Uh, Stephen, welcome to the program. Delighted to be here, particularly on Memorial Day. Yeah, so hey, um, your book uh, has received some pretty good reviews, and um, it's, uh, I, I guess it's already on sale here in Iowa, and presumably other places. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, the premise. Uh, 
I mean, this is uh, back. I mean, you're a Civil War scholar, and this is about the uh, Union perspective from the Civil War, really about uh, about a concern that still persists today. Yeah, well, let me explain. It's on advance sale. The book, uh, both the ebook and the hardback, will be out July first. Uh huh. But yes, okay. it's on advance sale nationwide, and actually, going to be worldwide starting September. Um, it's a very exciting book, um, and it's a topic that's been an interest of mine throughout my career. Because, as you know, I've I spent a lot of years working with veterans and active duty personnel, and this book. Is it's actually not a Civil War book. It's a book about the 50 years after the Civil War, starting uh, literally with right after the Lincoln assassination all the way through the 1910s. And it's a story of Reconstruction, its failure, uh, Jim Crow, opposition to the lost cause um, mythology that took hold and still has some aspects in the United States. It's the... it's. There's two intertwined untold stories here. The first untold story is the tremendous political activism of Union veterans, both black and white, for equality of all Americans. Again, a completely untold story. And intertwined with that is the fact that they established the model for civic responsibility of veterans within the United States upon their return from the military and war that have been emulated by soldiers, sailors, Marines in our times. And there were great examples of that, one of the most prominent obviously being the Vietnam veterans against the war. And um, I, I think it's a very exciting, again, two intertwined stories. I've spent decades lecturing on this material and finally have the first that will hope to be three or four books coming out. Um, but in true, in true publication fashion, this book is actually coming out before the intended first book. So um, the next book is going to be probably the prequel, which is actually a Civil War book. So um, let, let me ask you this, Stephen. Explain, I, I, I think most people know what, about Reconstruction, about Jim Crow, but the lost cause, that might be a, a bit of history that many of us are not that familiar with. What is the lost cause? Well, actually, they may be more familiar with the lost cause and Reconstruction in some ways. Um, the lost cause took hold quickly after the Civil War. And it removed the two aspects of, of the Civil War, which were the basis of the Civil War, white supremacy and slavery. And it recast why the war was fought, by whom the war was fought, and it had a tremendous impact, and still does, although it's lessening now, particularly in the last few decades, as to how people remember the Civil War, the results of the Civil War. And um, it has resonance now because, I mean, look what's going on about the teaching of the Civil War and uh, statues from the Civil War. I mean, these are all part and parcel of how the seminal event in American history, which is the Civil War, is remembered, is taught, uh, the knowledge of it, and it's all tied in to what this war truly was about. So, and, and, and what it truly was about is what you're referring to as the lost cause. No, well, no, the lost... No, 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 Ed, no, no. Yeah. The war was fought over slavery. Okay. Period. All right. That is the under, and, uh, on, and uh, the corollary, obviously, white supremacy. The lost cause was promulgated very soon after the war ended to justify this, the, uh, the Confederate States of America seceding from the United States and fighting the Civil War. Over the decades that followed, it became one of the dominant themes of understanding and interpretation of the Civil War, leading to complete amnesia that 200,000 men of color had fought in the armies and navies of the Union, that the war was fought over slavery, that Reconstruction, though a failure, was a noble attempt at biracial government. And among the things, among other revelations I have in my book, is the fact that Reconstruction, of, an, of a technically a failure, which ended in 1876, 
had tremendous impact in the United States because of the legislation that got passed during Reconstruction, the 13th and 14th Amendments, uh, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments. Plus, and one of the things that I point out, and Charles, you and I have talked about this, one of the most exciting topics that I lecture about now with, associated with the book is the fact that Reconstruction, although technically only dealing with the former uh, Confederate States of America, had a tremendous impact above the Mason-Dixon line in terms of opening up education for African-Americans in northern states. What a great example being Ohio, where the Ohio schools were desegregated in the 1880s and 1890s, even though technically Reconstruction did not involve northern states. So, um, I mean, this, this, this book, although not that long a book considering how many years I covered, shows the tremendous impact of the Civil War, not just during the Civil War, but the decades after, and that the men who fought it, the men of the Union, black and white, saw that they had just as much responsibility, if not more responsibility, for continuing the fight over the war had been about after the war was over. And to me, that's, that's an untold story, and I think a very important story for Americans. So you mentioned in the uh, in the in the uh, the description of the book uh, where it's available uh, to learn a little bit more about it online. You you mentioned uh, unpublished letters and other primary sources. I'm curious about that. Uh, I mean, unpublished letters. Uh, from... Yeah, well, I I didn't actually write that. <laughs> you know? Oh, you didn't, yeah, <laughs> that was something. I mean, it it's that's actually not that's actually not the biggest source. Okay. Um, the I delve deeply into the tremendous online archives of newspapers of the time, which are a tremendous source of information. Mm -hmm. um, the vast majority of my material in the book is actually primary sources. I do use work of other historians, but frankly, that is not the major thrust of this work. This work is based predominantly on my interpretation, on my work. My viewpoint as a psychiatrist who has treated veterans. So I use a tremendous amount of contemporary newspapers all the way through, like I said, some cases 1830s, all the way through 1910, 1920. Um, the material that, that the unpublished letters referred to was the great material from the Library of Congress, which were the actual essays that were submitted by a group that became known as the Left Arm Corps as part of a handwriting contest because they had lost the use of their right arms. Uh, amazing material, just incredible stuff. And those are actually at the Library of Congress. That's how I got started with this. I tracked them all down. I have information on them throughout their entire lives, including two free men of color who were in the Left Arm Corps. And um, so the material that I have is predominantly primary source material from newspapers, uh, regimental histories, although I don't, I, I try not to use material that is 50 years late and people recollecting. I like to use contemporary sources. That's why the newspapers are great sources. Yeah, right. And yeah. Uh, I got to tell you, Ed, for anyone who, who looks at newspapers from the 1800s in the United States, I mean, they, they really were, the articles were beautifully written. Hmm. Um, they, they carried information in depth about um, acts of Congress. Because yeah, again, the only communication you had was telegraph, letters, sure. and newspapers. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned... So newspapers. Go ahead. Well, yeah, you, you, you mentioned uh, the tearing down of uh, the Southern war hero statues, uh, Robert E. Lee, others. Uh, you mentioned some of the other um, current points of contention relevant to the Civil War. How do you see this book act, in, impacting the conversation about some of those really uh, hot-button conversations? Um, I certainly hope it does, because I have two chapters devoted to the Lee statue that up until two years ago was in the U.S. Capitol. And I tell, again, a story that hasn't been told in 100 years about how a statue of Robert E. Lee, clad in his CSA uniform, ended up in Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol. And... Um, against the intense opposition hmm. of surviving Union veterans it, who were outraged. It wasn't, carried into it, by, it wasn't carried into by the January 6th res, uh, insurrectionists, was it? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah, we, we'll touch on that. But okay. The, the, the statues that are being looked and by the way, I think one of the most positive things about looking at Confederate um, statues, including the ones that were taken down from you know the monument area in Richmond, is they're going into museums, which I think is the best thing to do because the museums, including you know there's great museums at the Tredegar Ironworks now, which used to be the Museum of the Confederacy, is the Museum of uh, the American Civil War and other places. I greatly advocate for putting those statues in museums, mm-hmm. explaining, first of all, Ed, those statues did not start in the Civil War. They came decades later right, right. to advocate for Jim Crow and segregation. And that's a very important story yeah. to yeah. how those statues became so prominent. Hey, Steve, we got to run and to... Go ahead. We we got to run to a short break here. Um, I want to make sure people know uh, where to find your book if they're interested. Um, it's being it's being published by Roman and Littlefield. You can go to that website. Um, it is on Amazon. It is on Barnes and Noble. Again, you can pre-order it. And actually, I must say that sales apparently have been very good. Before the book is coming out, it will be out July first. There are reviews, including one of Publishers Weekly, and the ones that I got endorsements for the book. I hope there'll be other reviews. Okay. Um, and I'll be I'll be doing appearances um, to promote the book over the next several months, and probably at least over the next year. All right, that's uh, one more war to fight: Union veterans' battle for equality through Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and the Lost Cause. Uh, with us, Dr. Stephen uh, Goldman, the author of that book. Uh, uh, Charles's brother, by the way, just uh, full disclosure there, and I think the Goldman brothers both could stick around for our next uh, segment. We've got to run to a short break. We want to talk about Memorial Day in the context of the uh, First Amendment and the freedom of speech and what that exactly means relevant to uh, the hard work of uh, so many of our young men and women who are in uniform now and have been uh, in recent years. Um, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks again to our sponsors, including Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westerman and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. Okay, so hey, thanks for joining us uh, this Memorial Day week program. Uh, with me again, Charles Goldman and his brother, Dr. Stephen Goldman, on the phone from uh, somewhere out east, New Jersey maybe. Maryland. Maryland. Potomac, Potomac, Maryland. All right, Potomac. All right, I remember walking through Potomac one night. I was uh, I was practically delirious. Uh, <laughs> it was the very end of my march across the country. Hey, so um, yeah, I, I, I want to talk about um, about the uh, the First Amendment. Uh, and, but but you know, I, I think it's important too that we we recognize uh, yeah, those of us who are concerned about peace. We recognize the uh, importance of uh, respecting. 
and valuing the input of our of our military men and women, uh, many of whom are, are not particularly happy, it seems, about a lot of the uh, direction of our foreign policy. Uh, I'm not sure about foreign policy. But, well, but domestic, yeah. no, I, I, I think that, as my brother can talk about a little bit in terms of political activism, the military members take very seriously that their oath is not to the country, it's to right. the Constitution. And, and that in the Civil War, you had many Union soldiers who did not necessarily come into the Civil War with sophisticated, or what we would consider sophisticated views about race. But they did believe that keeping the Union together was a, a worthy cause in and of itself. And the, the fighting of the war and the trudging all over the United States, places that Iowans, for instance, had never been, served to unify them and also changed, as my brother's book shows, their attitudes in many ways about uh, equality. Um, and we have, we have a problem now which manifests uh, in certain ways where the country has suddenly become uh, a Christian nation. And specifically, what is troubling is that you're seeing um, at least two recent instances on Air Force bases in which, uh, as you're entering those bases, you're either confronted with a uh, the, the sign for the base that uh, uh, you know has a run tag underneath it, you know, have a blessed day, or the people who are entering the base are a certain cadre of the airmen who are at the entrance are saying that uh, as people are passing into the base, and that is explicitly uh, cannot be done according to Air Force regulations and also according to Supreme Court decisions. And it's clearly, you can say, oh, down south, they use it as a greeting. Well, um, it obviously is identifying themselves as Christian and sort of querying people coming in, are you a Christian like me? So, Stephen, uh, do you, uh, would you concur with your brother, and is that, uh, is that problematic? Uh, it's very problematic. And um, let, me, let me do two, a couple of things that Charles mentioned, and I'm going to do a little more in depth. The Civil War is, I believe, unique in history, where the stated goal of the war changed in the midst of the war. The goal to maintain the Union was the stated goal. They specifically did not mention slavery, as part in the Crittenden Resolution and others. But by 1863, it was a stated goal of liberation. There's no war in history that did that. As a result, the point that Charles is making that I clearly emphasized in the book, is the radicalization. And I mean the radicalization politically in terms of a greater understanding of equality for all Americans swept through the Union Army. And um, even though, you know, a belief in destroying slavery did not necessarily entail a belief in equality, but clearly when yeah. you when you fight with a man and now fight with a man or a woman and you put your life on the line with somebody that is an experience that breaks down every barrier where the color is not black or white the color is red hmm. and we have what's come up now let's not forget something we have a volunteer army we have a volunteer military the civil war was fought by men who came from every walk of life very exactly the same way in World War Two, and by the way, exactly the same way during Vietnam, which was also not a volunteer army. So we have these factors going into that, as Charles mentioned. And I do want to make another point. When you talk about the political views of the military, you must differentiate between those in the active active military and veterans, because they're not the same. And I think sometimes they get. Um, conflated as being the same, but they're not the same. Yeah, actually, there was some polling recently because, yes, the assumption is, as, as my brother is saying, that especially in a volunteer service, that you have a much more conservative and potentially um, 
a right-wing extremist element to the cadre of, of soldiers. But uh, polling among veterans has shown that they are consistently, by a good margin, much less likely to incline themselves to extre- right-wing extremism than the general population of non-veterans. Right. And that right. they have a much that higher a, rate. A, right. These yeah. are critical points. Right. And they had a much higher rate of civil engagement. So, for instance, a lot of um, proselytizing to get poll workers is done among veterans hmm. because it's right. much more successful and because they are not going to be intimidated, right. you know, to, well, to stay away. Well, I mean, I believe all three of us, I mean, Ed, you, you took an oath um, in the legislature, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My brother took an oath in the Air Force. I, I twice took a federal oath. All of us swore to defend the Constitution. And this is what they're, I mean, this, they had a stand down. Remember, Charles, in the beginning after, the, after January 6th, mm-hmm. the military was ordered to have a full day stand down to reiterate the fact that they take an oath not to a president, not to an administration, but to defend and protect the Constitution of the United States. The, the, the men who fought in the Civil War, people like Audie Murphy, who advocated on the, the protection of First Amendment against the House Committee on Activities, certainly John Kerry's testimony, along with others about the Vietnam vets against the war, that's exactly the kind of thing we're talking about, as Charles is mentioning. And we see this now with, like, the Vote Vets group. Hmm. I got a beautiful email today from the Vote Vets group about the importance of veterans as they, just like every other citizen in the United States, to ensure that this country lives up to the ideals of this country. That's what Memorial Day is supposed to be about. It's not just the remembrance of sacrifice. It's what they were sacrificing for. Hmm. And I think so many times Good point. this gets lost. Yeah. And I, uh, I, 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 go ahead. Well, you know, I, I guess I, I'm hearing a lot of um, criticism from members of the U.S. military veterans who, um, who, don't, who aren't particularly pleased with the foreign policy they're seeing now. And, and, and even, I mean, I, Tulsi Gabbard is a well-known example of that. Uh, I'm still an active member of the military who's very critical of what she calls forever wars. And um, I mean, we have this. Uh, we have a, the, the Veterans for Peace group that are now sailing. Oh, they started in, uh, in the Upper Mississippi. They're now all the way down to the Gulf and up the East Coast. Or I think they're in, mm-hmm. in New England, and they're sailing to raise awareness about the the critical importance of not uh, not engaging foreign policy the way we are because of the increased risk of nuclear war. And uh, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm hearing from a lot of veterans, a lot of military voices that say, you know. Some of what we're doing right now is not helpful, and I, I, I don't know. You, you, you may have. You probably have a lot broader contact with a, 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 a bigger spectrum of um, U.S. military members than I do. And so I'm wondering if you, you hear the same sort of concerns being raised, or if, uh, if I might be in a little bit of a bubble there. Is that to me or for Charles? Uh, go for it, Steve. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the one of the. I mean, I've been privileged in in many ways in my career. One of them, obviously, having worked with veterans for decades. I mean, it's been one of the the highlights of my my career, both treating and working with them. And I can't think of a lecture I've done over the decades and continue to do where there aren't veterans in the audience. And um, they've been so generous in sharing their views. They've been so generous in sharing their experiences. And... Um, I have found them, and I'm sure, Charles, you would concur with us, literate, thoughtful, and across the political spectrums, having served, having been part of something larger than oneself. Because we, we're one of the few countries, one of the few democracies that doesn't have mandatory national service, which I think, which I hope will change. You know, the draft and military service used to be the great leveler where everybody served. We don't have anything like that now. And we're so polarized. We have nothing that draws that kind of experience together, where everyone's on the same footing. And um, our governor, you know, governor of Maryland, the veteran himself, is advocating for a year of, of service to the state. And I think it's a wonderful idea. 
So when you're asking me about the stuff I'm hearing, they're Amer- you know, veterans are American citizens like every other person. And they bring a special perspective because they have taken on an obligation to serve. But they don't think that obligation ends when they leave the military. But I do think that the, the experience of the military, um, it puts, it's put skin in the game. There's way too many people in this country who are spectators to war. And, Absolutely. And they go to the football stadium and they, they run around with, uh, the, with the biblical uh, quotations at the Dallas Cowboy, you know, Texas Stadium. Right. Um, once again, linking, it, linking Christianity to warfare. Um, and they think that, that somehow that that's enough. You know, I'm doing everything I can. You know, I got the sticker on my car. Um, it, it's 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 kind of similar to the issue with capital punishment. You know, people are real into capital punishment unless you're the one who has to do it. And there was a, a, a spectacular article recently uh, talking to some of the executioners and how many of them have psychological issues with having to be the executioners. Mm. You know, and there's way too much... Uh, as I said, it, it cheerleading and spectating here. And once you've done it, once you've seen that violence, once you've been part of that violence, you're not as as into it as the you know these these the amosexuals out in the woods on the weekends playing militia, you know. Yeah, I mean th- that's a great point. I mean there are so many there are so many stereotypes and mistaken beliefs about veterans, and um, one of them which which started. Frankly, right after the Civil War, people were terrified when the veterans came home. They were they, because these men had been trained to kill, and they were terrified when they came back. And you know, there's only two and a half million of them returning to the north, and they thought that there was going to be you know riots in the streets that the veterans were going to be more violent. And of course, the the opposite is found. Veterans who people who've really been under fire, people who've been to war, most of them would never pick up another a gun in their lives. Um, this is repeated, and I'm not, I'm not saying this anti-hunting, but this has been repeated in the literature about, because when you've seen lives lost, and by the way, this is what I wanted to get about one thing that's so important, is surviving war entails such an obligation because you've survived. John Kerry beautifully talks about it. He talks about every day is extra. And this is a man who, who exemplifies that his military service led to his tremendous, you know, service politically and otherwise. And it clearly motivated him. And he believed he's not alone on so many different levels. My, my father-in-law was a decorated World War II soldier and came back and was a pillar in his community, doing things for the good of his town. And, um, and this was a, a man who was awarded the Bronze Star, landed at Utah Beach. For the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah, we well, yeah we have a country where I mean, mentioning John Kerry, where a, a a decorated war veteran can be maligned by a guy who dodged the war, George Bush. Yeah, right. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah, and and Bush gets away with it. I mean, this is history now. It's mm-hmm. it, but 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 the problem continues. It's, it's sickening. Yeah, it's sickening. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Kerry was that the um, the swift boats were boats that were made to be ocean going. And they were taking them. They were lightly armored. They were taking them upriver, in the right. in, in the Mekong Delta, and yeah, basically, Delta. yeah, basically the Viet Cong were were firing at these boats, and the bullets would go in one side and come out the other. It took an amazing amount of bravery, and yet they absolutely they were able to swift boat him, of course, by a, a bunch of people who never served. Three times, yeah, awarded the Silver Star and the Bronze Star. Hey, if you if you remember, um, Max Cleland. <laughs> That's right. right. Was, was, Max Cleveland was swift voted. Yeah. So I guess my, my question is that how how do you where does the truth come out in all this? I mean, and right now we have we have a again we have no draft, and we could talk about that. Uh, I'm I'm not a draft sure. fan myself, but I understand that most of the people who are volunteering to be in the U.S. military, a lot of them are doing it because of not everyone, but a lot of them are doing it because it's the financial option available to them. It helps them get well, to that's, college. That's, um, actually not, that's actually not new. And, um, I mean, I, we, I know so many people 
who got their education through the GI Bill. The benefits are marvelous. Sure, but, but, but see, what we don't have, we don't have members of the U.S. Senate, for example, their family members serving in the U.S. Well, military. Yeah, they don't, you're bringing no, a great... No, yeah. we have more now. Yeah. That's actually not true. We but have I, more for a while, but I think oh, really? there were none. Yeah, I, I agree with you, man. Uh, I, I think you, you don't get to vote on a declaration of war. Unless somebody in your family or you yourself have served this country, and I didn't, yeah, I, I knew for a while there was no no members of the U.S. Senate's family were enlisted in, in the U.S. Right. military. I didn't realize that it changed, that correct. Stephen. That's that's. Well, that. but, well, more members of Congress now are are veterans. Sure, right. Which and and that has changed the dialogue. By the way, Ed, Ed please don't misunderstand. I'm not advocating for a draft, and I'm not disparaging the volunteer military we have. But it does change the demographic. Sure. It does change the fact that most people have no experience with people who have been in the military now. Mm-hmm. It is not a unifying factor any longer. Right. And my, and my point is when, when, the, when the demographic is, is somewhat polarized, it makes it easier to pull off those kinds of lies that, that were used yes. against, against John Kerry right. and, and others. And, and, and don't forget that you know, the military led the country in terms of integration. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a, that's a very important point. And by the way, when Truman ordered that, he did it against the wishes of the military, as you know. They had done a survey. Less than 10% of the officers hmm. after World War II believed in an, in an integrated military, and Truman went ahead anyway. Hmm. And as you know, the impact of that, the GI Bill had a tremendous impact. Because it opened up educational opportunities for all people. It, who had it created the American middle class. Yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, the, the, the impact of the military, and again, going back to the Civil War is a great example of that, the impact of the service and then what happened after the war, so many things happen when people come home. The civil rights movements movement in the United States were all impacted by the experience of African-American uh, members of the military when they returned home. To exactly the same. Right, yeah, after to, World War I. Right, yeah that were rooted in the fact they were treated like human beings in Europe, and they came back to Jim Crow America. Right. Hmm. World War, in World War II, African-American officers were refused admittance to officer lounges and others when they came back. That led to um, an yeah. incident. Hmm. Becky got- Robinson was court-martialed for refusing to go to the back of a bus when he was in the military a decade before Rosa Parks. All yeah. these things are important. Right, but don't worry, we won't have to teach any of that in the DeSantis Hillsdale <laughs> curriculum. <laughs> oh, God. I know. I mean, I mean oh. this, this is why history matters. Yeah. Hey, Stephen, and i got to run to a break. Really appreciate you joining us today. Um, it's my pleasure. Folks, uh, Dr. Stephen Goldman with us on the phone. Uh, we're going to take a short break here. Charles is going to stick around. We're going to be uh, continuing our conversation regarding things foreign policy related and U.S. military related. <laughs> The uh, Ukrainian, the so-called Ukrainian offensive um, that the media has been uh, touting recently. I want to talk with Charles about that. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village.
Welcome back to the forum, folks. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Lipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. And thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has cared for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, so hey, Charles Goldman with me here. We've uh, we've dumped his brother Stephen. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm now only stuck with one Goldman in the studio. Hey, so um, yeah, the Ukraine, uh, the New York Times, the uh, mouthpiece of the mainstream media, is talking about a new offensive. And uh, you know, I've I, I I read through their description of this a couple times now, and I have some real problems with it. One problem is that it never ever mentions the fact that we're dealing with a country, Russia. And, you know, that has, what, 6,000 nuclear weapons? And that never seems to factor into the conversation about whether or not it makes sense to escalate a conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And again, many many people, I think, are seeing, the you know, Ukraine is kind of, it's, it's a proxy war. The U.S. is really at war with Russia. And we're going to fight that war until the very last Ukrainian sol- you know, soldier so or civilian standing. So how does it differ from Vietnam? Except, well, the difference well, is a great way. We had troops in how Vietnam. Many, how many different ways? Yeah. Well, but we had troops in Vietnam. But essentially, the war was a proxy for the Cold War that was going on sure. between the Russians and the Americans and, to some degree, the Communist Chinese at the time. Um, well, I, think, I, think it was, I think it's and really— And there were nuclear weapons around then, too. Sure. I think it's really—you know, even at the time, it was really hard to justify— War in Vietnam. I mean, it, and again, maybe that and the draft are probably reasons why it was so easy to see a very strong, vocal, and effective peace movement rise in opposition. And, you know, this one's a little bit more, you know, difficult to, uh, to plop into that kind of a category. Well, no, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not bringing up Vietnam for that purpose, but, but you know, I, there were nuclear weapons around since the post-World War II period, and obviously uh, by the time we got involved in Vietnam, they were proliferating to even greater numbers than we had right now. Vietnam is not not a border country to Russia. Well, that's (laughs) That's exactly right. That's a huge difference. And, you know, and again, part of what is, what Ukraine claims, the Crimea in particular, the Crimea was part of Russia for a long time. So it's, you know, it's a a gray area. You know, and I think... um, I think some of the history suggests that we really could have avoided this war if we'd, you know, if we if we handled the uh, f- the the years after the uh, fall of the Soviet Union differently, uh, more intelligently, more fairly, and uh, that's water over the dam at this point. Now we have this conflict. To do. I mean, clearly, clearly Vladimir Putin is clearly out of line in what he's doing in Ukraine, uh, and I think I, I think that's. Putting it mild. Well, sure it is. Yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 an illegal and I, war. I would argue that the interference in the American election, which is absolutely clear now. I mean, in, you know, I, I know that Trump says that, that that report from the federal prosecutor in Connecticut exonerates him completely, but it doesn't do any of that. Um, that was about basically one thing. Putin wanted a free hand to do what he's doing. And that was his motivation. Why else would he care whether Trump was the president or not? But he knew Trump was easily manipulated. And so this is a, a very important thing to Putin. Right, right. And I think, you know, and, it, and, and the level of civilian atrocity that's occurring should not be downplayed. You mean a civilian atrocity among U- Ukrainians or among Russian troops? Predominantly well, yeah, Russian yeah, military forces on Ukrainian civilians. Right. I mean, I mean blindly they... sending poorly targeted hypersonic missiles at a city. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I know there's going to be people out there saying, well, we did it like to Dresden and we dropped bombs on, on the Japanese cities and so we're no better. It doesn't make it... Right. That, that, it says nothing about the absolute barbarism of what's going on here. Right. And I don't see, in spite of that 
you know, the, the Radio Shack drone attack on the Kremlin that, that they the had Ukraine. like two weeks yeah. ago. Yeah. I see a lot of Ukrainian bombs flying at civilian populations in Russia. Yeah, no, it's, it, but, but I mean, Russia has lost a, a tremendous number of uh, soldiers. This is, well, I, we don't know I, how many. We don't know how many. Yeah, neither do the Russian the, people, except they notice that the children are not coming home. Yeah, the best guess is it's 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 significantly higher than than anybody, including Vladimir Putin, probably expected. That's correct. And to the point where it's going to. I mean, it is not hard to see to imagine a growing opposite, a growing peace movement in Russia. And where does that lead? I don't know. But you know, the, my, I guess my problem is the, the way the U.S. mainstream media talks about this. It's it's almost like it's a it's a game. It's a and it's almost like there's no expectation that any other approach can work differently. I mean, we've got we've got didn't isn't it Denmark that stepped forward and said, hey, let's try to negotiate a diplomatic conversation. Denmark, about this? the only other country with a debt ceiling law. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but they've got Greenland they're stuck with. <laughs> no, I I, I I I hear what you're saying, and. Yes, of course, they've been talking incessantly about the counteroffensive. And, you know, I think, again, here you have a lot of people who don't have military experience. And it's kind of like playing, remember that old game Risk, you know, where you would... I remember Risk. Yeah, I never and, played and, it much. But and, yeah. you know, so, so I, I think that a lot of these armchair generals kind of like all these strategies yeah, and tactics. It's, it's some of them are in newsrooms, including the New York Times. Right, I mean, no, I understand just... that. But no, I, it's, it's become pretty clear that nobody can win this war. And that's going to go on and just drag on and right. on and on. So why doesn't the New York Times talk more about the importance of a diplomatic solution? Well, they, I, I think if you read the Dave Leonard's piece, what the point he's making is that for the most part, um, the, this whole thing with Bakhmud, which had really no strategic value. Right. In fact, Bakhmud reminds me of Quezon, if you remember in Vietnam, which was the... It was a, a base fairly f- just south of the of the demilitarized zone that they defended for like 50 days that was surrounded by the North Vietnamese regular army. And there's all these famous pictures of, you know, these planes landing, the C-30s, C-130s landing and pushing the, the supplies out and they're taking off so they wouldn't get blown out of the sky by the artillery that was surrounding the base. And so that went on. That was on TV for two months. You back know, in the 60s. Back in the 60s. Yeah. And then after the siege was finally lifted, nobody went back and realized they closed the base down within months. It so, had no strategic value, ultimately. And huge it was very waste vulnerable. Of, huge waste of lives and money. But it was, it yeah. was the point was that we weren't going to be shown as running, right? And to some degree, this is kind of an analogous. That's what Bakhmut was because it didn't really have much military value. But it was about that they had the Russians were hell bent on you know having a victory that they could bring back to the people, and the U.S. through their Ukrainian foot soldiers had to show that they could uh, that they could uh, you know mount a credible defense. But that but that does have value in your you it, you have to position yourself to try to get the best deal, right? And this is what really this counteroffensive is about. They want to try to cut the Russians off so they can't supply their troops down in Crimea. Whether they can do that or not is not really clear. But that's really what Leonard was talking about. It wasn't just blithely saying we're going to play this game of war. They, both of them are trying to position themselves to get the best deal they can. So, so what, why, why does Leonard never mention diplomacy, never mentions the threat of nuclear war? I mean, Well, he does. He's this, mentioning negotiation. <clears throat> that's not, diplomacy. Not, not, not in this piece I've read twice now about the, quote, new offensive in Ukraine. That, I, I don't think you're reading it correctly because he's well, specifically find, find talking word, about find. positioning positioning for ultimately what's going to have to be negotiations. Well, the, the, the diplomacy needs to happen now. I mean, there's this whole not, whole concept that you've got to try to continue to win more and more battles, more and more ground. Uh, I understand strategically how that plays out, but what isn't factored into that are all the civilian debts, all the, uh, all the uh, military debts. You know, all the destruction of property, of land, uh, all the money. I mean, you know, at, at, what, at what price do you want to delay diplomacy in order to try to get, quote, the best deal? And at what pr- you know, to what extent do you want to risk the growing possibility of a nuclear exchange in order to, quote, get the best deal? Okay. If there's any sort of nuclear exchange, it's going to be, number one, by accident. 
Really? By accident? It is not, there's not going to be... You don't think... Vladimir Putin has already said he's not taking nukes off the table. I, of course, because he understands how that influences Western opinion. He understands how the West, he believes, is highly fearful of that possibility. As we should be. As well, everybody as we should, should be, be. But we're not going to be we're not going to be sending intercontinental ballistic missiles against each other over Ukraine. Why not? Would there be I mean, tactical uh, use of I, weapons? Perhaps. Okay. But the, my, my problem is this stuff escalates. Yes, of course it escalates. You, you, I understand you, Putin that. uses a, a strategic nuclear weapon somewhere in Ukraine. And and why why does that why, why does that not lead to a counter a counteroffensive from the West? And why does that not escalate? I mean, it could not, but it very well could. And that's that's the that's my that's what really ticks me off about the mainstream media. Uh, they 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 don't ever confront that reality. You know, again, we fought any number of wars since World War II, since the dawning of the atomic slash nuclear age, and there hasn't been a nuclear exchange on the In border fact, of Russia. Well, I mean, Afghanistan's not that far away from Russia. It's further away than Ukraine. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I also think you're, you're overestimating the enthusiasm within Russia for a nuclear exchange. I mean, Putin, is, Putin understands how useful this is to bring it up. I mean, this whole thing, like he's moving, he's moving tactical weapons into uh, Belarus, yeah. Right. And so they interviewed the president of Belarus or the dictator of Belarus. Uh, and he's saying, well, maybe they're here, maybe they're not. You know, <laughs> and they're going to move them in one month. There's no facilities to store these tactical weapons in, really. And do you think Putin really wants tactical weapons available in a low security situation in Belarus? Because those things can get sold to other nations or other groups that aren't so enthusiastic. I mean, as you see, what recently we're seeing these groups of Russians, you know, who are, who are taking basically the Ukraine side and making military incursions into Russia now. I mean, the, he's not surrounded by, you know, people who are only, you know, going to be sympathetic to the Russians' claim that Crimea is historically theirs. Yeah. I, I just... I, I hear what you're saying. Sure, we don't want the uncertainty, you know, but actually the the the, the last near nuclear attack on the United States was by a B-52 that dropped two bombs in North Carolina by mistake, and fortunately sure. they didn't go off. You yeah, know? yeah. Well, yeah. Whether accident or intention, uh, the fact that we still have what thirteen thousand nuclear weapons. In the world, fifteen thousand, something like that. It's 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 insane. Well, I'm not and arguing against nuclear disarmament, but yeah. I, I don't think you 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 can just give up Ukraine and potentially other eastern states in 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 Europe. Yeah, I'm not saying you're fearful up, but, of a nuclear. But, but let's begin to really really push hard for diplomacy. If the, if the U.S. were to lead the charge for a diplomatic solution, I think it would. I think you'd see the effort happen pretty soon. I, and I think what would solidify that would be if the Ukrainians cannot dislodge the Russians. Yeah then they'll be more likely to, to go that route. Charles, i got to run to a break. Uh, thanks again for joining us on this Memorial Day program. Charles Goldman, folks. You're welcome. Hey, pleasure. Back in a minute with uh, Kathy Burns joining me to talk about, in our farm and food segment, to talk about seaweed. I didn't know it grows on the farm. Well, it, it, it might be. And, <laughs> and in response to a, a changing climate, maybe seaweed might end up being a more prominent part of your diet. And of the two of us, Charles, you're probably the one more excited about that than I am. I'm back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Oh, someone is king, all the dead shall rise. 
Welcome back to the Family Forum. Hey, thanks again to Gateway Marketing Cafe, our longtime anchor sponsor for this program. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, including Catholic Peace Ministry, founded in the 1980s to work for peace and justice. CPM is an independent nonprofit organization with no official ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese. All right, so a recent uh, article in The Guardian apparently featured what is being touted as yet another new wonder food, the seaweed olva lactuca. It's not really Latuka. new, but it's, yeah. Maybe yeah. I'm saying it right. <laughs> I think we're, we're doing our best. Okay. It's not a new food at all. Uh, it's been being, you know, produced naturally in the wild and consumed for many years, but it's newly being touted as a wonder food. It is seaweed. Right. And yeah, yeah. It's commonly known as sea lettuce. It kind of resembles a leaf of lettuce. However, it's a very thin bodied leaf. It's two cells wide. It's green. It's green. It's I'm very fam- I am green. familiar with it. I, yeah. I, I think I might have even tasted it years ago. Well, I know I've had seaweed salad, seaweed soup in some uh, different restaurants. So are they, is this the one they're also calling sea wheat? There is one group calling it sea wheat. The cost, European Cooperation in Science and Technology, is currently operating a production initiative called Sea Wheat. And they say the main goal of seaweed is to create a comprehensive step change in this knowledge of the entire Ulva genus. The advanced knowledge promoted by the seaweed action will create businesses and job opportunities in maritime and coastal communities, resulting in a significantly positive impact on societal so, welfare. That's so, a lot. So they're basically trying to convince us that this is a substitute for wheat? I don't understand the connection to wheat at all. And maybe in terms of how much the world relies on wheat as a staple, they are indicating that in the face of climate change and increased uh, climate disasters going on and, and weather conditions that when we can't grow wheat anymore, we can still farm the sea and we can do aquacultures to produce this this food in the same you know, mass production as wheat. Okay, so I, I am I am impressed with the uh, the increase in production. Let's see, it was it was a million tons uh, uh, back in the last century, and now cultivation has increased production to thirty five point eight million tons. That's a lot. That is a, a huge <laughs> increase, and there is a little bit of a growing market for it. Uh, not as much in the U.S. as in Europe and in Asia. What's the nutritional value of uh, sea lettuce like? Among other things, things I read a description that said it has this and that and this and that and the kitchen sink. Just <laughs> a few of the major nutrients that people are looking for. As far as protein, it is uh, uh, produces... Uh, something comparable to, well, first of all, Irish moss, and then also Atlantic (laughs) salmon in terms of protein. I didn't know, Ed, that Irish moss produced so much protein. Let's get some and eat it when we're in Ireland. How about compared to chicken eggs? Um, I don't see that. Uh, Oh, compared to chicken, though, chicken is a little higher than than the uh, the sea lettuce as it's mm. called potassium is also it's it's really a little bit on the upper end of potassium production with some other popular foods such as uh, again Irish moss and kelp iron is huge it's um it's got it's like second okay. in iron producing things magnesium so, calcium iodine okay so high high nutritional value minerals some protein value uh, flavor-wise? According to The Guardian, again, uh, there is a major cultural shift moving toward this product. So chefs are trying to create recipes for, and this is salads, stir-fries, and soups. That doesn't sound very comprehensive to me. That sounds like what it's already being used for. They are tempting consumers uh, with a seaweed that has a, a mild, slightly salty flavor with a nutty aftertaste. And that is a, that's sort of the, the so flavor note. I, I, I can envision eating a little bit of seaweed, but otherwise I'm kind of a big no thank you. Where are you at? I just worry a little bit about the huge aqua aquaculture build-outs and all the product that's going to use and the energy it's going to take to run them. And yes, mm. also, I'm fine with a little. I don't want it to be <laughs> replacing wheat in my diet. Yeah. Hey, thanks, uh, Kathy, and thanks to our guest today, Dr. Stephen Goldman, and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, 
Kathy Burns and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing our bumper music. Folks, we'll be back next week again with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.